coming to you this evening. Numbers chapter 4 is where we find ourselves uh, tonight, the book of Numbers, Sunday night, making our way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And just by way of a short review, since we've been out of it for a couple of weeks, uh, the book of Numbers is named Numbers because uh, it has uh, two numberings of the nation of Israel in it, one at the beginning of the book and then one uh, late in the book. And as we've uh, come into this uh, early part of the book of Numbers, the Lord is taking the children of Israel from uh, the desert region or kind of wilderness region around Mount Sinai and he wants to take them on a journey into Canaan. But the population of this uh, camping trip is somewhere between two and three million people. As we saw, you know, uh, uh, 20 times the size of the city of Modesto, two to three uh, populations of San Francisco. It requires some amount of decency and an order. A little bit of structure is required to get there so everyone doesn't get trampled and they know their order and things. And the Lord has established that as He's called an army forth and told them uh, how He wants that army to be uh, numbered. The camp in which the people were to uh, set up the camp as they would end their day's journey and these kind of details. He spoke also of taking the tribe of Levi, one of the twelve tribes, as being his own for his use to give to the priests uh, to help them in their work associated with the spiritual side of the nation of Israel. And of course the spiritual side of a nation is the most important side without which all of the armies and all of the uh, military, all of the money, all of the everything is just wasted because the nation will rot from the inside out. And so God wanted to make sure that this uh, nation had a spiritual focus and that the other things were kind of uh, additions to that. So first things first. And he spoke about this tribe of Levi. He identified three main families within the Levi, spoke broadly of what their responsibilities would be, and now in chapter 4 he starts to get into some of the specific details related to each of of those tribes. Then the Lord spoke, or those families within the tribe, and then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, take a census of the sons of Kohath, and Kohath was one of those families within the tribe of Levi. From among the children of Levi, by their families, by their father's house, and their age group that they would do this work was from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. All who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. So their period of active duty was between the ages of 30 and 50. And then they kind of would go out into retirement. I'm sure they continue to serve the Lord. It's a pretty nice little window. Get your 20-year pin and you're out. But um, it's interesting why he would kind of take this narrow band. Now, to be 50 years old in the ancient world would be to be a pretty older person. I don't know what the old 50 or the new 50 would be compared to the old 50, new 50. We hear all this stuff today. I don't know what it is, you know. Uh, anyway, we won't trample on that. Everybody's working hard to be the new whatever of this and that and everything. And oh, boy, it costs a fortune. But anyway, I'm not getting into anybody's business on this. But you look and say, why this band? I mean, uh, you, you had a... The work that they did is we're going to see very, very physical. So there would be that upper kind of age where 50 years old, they've kind of, uh, in that time, their body would kind of be worn out for doing the kind of physical work that was required of the Levites. But the work also was very, very spiritual. and was very, very detail-oriented. And it required spiritual maturity in the Levites. Even though they were handling physical things, they were handling holy things, and they were modeling that before, the, before God's people. And so it required a great sobriety and spiritual maturity. And, uh, and so they picked this window where they weren't too young and they weren't too old, and that was the age group that he settled on. Now a little bit later in the book of Numbers, we're going to see that some of the Levites are being numbered from the age of 25, and it seems to indicate 
that there was kind of like an apprentice period from 25 to 30 that uh, young men would enter into that and then uh, they would kind of seamlessly move into their service at 30 instead of, you know, hitting, they could hit the ground running uh, that way. So this was the age for uh, serving in, within these families and in, in, uh, uh uh, doing the duties of the Levite. And this is the service, so that's the age requirement. This is the actual work that the sons of Kohath had uh, dedicated to them in the tabernacle of meeting uh, relating to the most holy things. When the camp prepares to journey, now here's the whole reason we need these guys. Uh, in, in part, a large uh, reason for it is that this is a moving group of people. So they set the tabernacle up. In the middle of the camp, God would lead them with a, by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And when that pillar stopped, that's where they set up camp. And the camp would build all around it. They would uh, reconstruct and put together the tabernacle, all of the furnishings, everything. Very, very elaborate kind of operation. And then God, when God wanted to move them now again toward Canaan, they would take it all down. And so it was portable, so it required work. Uh, preparing, putting it up, taking it down because they were a pilgrim people, a journeying people. We are a pilgrim people in this world from one end of the Bible uh, to the other. So when the camp prepares to journey, they're going to break camp now. Aaron is, and his sons, now they, uh, they are Levites, but um, they're uh, descendants of, of Aaron. Aaron and his sons were the priests uh, among the Levites, among the nation of Israel, but, but that's, that's, you had to be a descendant of Aaron in order to be a priest. So Aaron was the high priest and his son, the priests. They shall come and take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony, speaking of the ark of the covenant, with it, with the, with the um, covering veil. And then they, that is the priests, shall put on that ark of the testimony, the ark of the covenant, a covering of badger skin. Badger skin was... Uh, water tight so it would give waterproof protection while they were traveling and spread over that cloth entirely uh, over that a cloth entirely of blue and they shall insert its poles into the holes on the side or the rings on the side where the poles were to be uh, inserted and so here's the Lord I mean he's God is a God of detail you can look at the human body uh, look at outer space look at the universe a God of detail and so he says, this is how I want it. I want that Ark of the Covenant, when it gets moved, I want the priest to cover it. Nobody else covers it. I want it covered with this cloth, and then I want it covered with, with badger skin. And, and so they were the only ones to do it. And in the, on the table of showbread, um, they shall spread a blue cloth. And again, another furnishing of the tabernacle. Put a blue cloth over it. Put on it the dishes and the pans and the bowls and the pitchers for pouring, and the showbread shall be on it. And so we remember when we looked uh, earlier and uh, in, in looking at the construction of these particular furnishings, they were built with a lip on them so these things could be put on the top. They could travel, be handled by four men at either corner holding a pole, and things might shift, but they wouldn't fall off. And so... Uh, the, the construction was made for uh, a moving pilgrim people, and they shall then cover that table of showbread with a scarlet cloth and cover the same with a covering of badger skin, and they shall insert its pole. So one's to be a blue cloth, one's to be a scarlet cloth. All this is very important uh, to God. And they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand, the menorah that was in the uh, holy place of of the tabernacle and uh, the, they cover the lampstand of the light with its lamps and its wick trimmers its trays and all its oil vessels with which they service it and then they shall put it with all its utensils in a covering of badger skins and put it on a carrying beam and so it was also to be carried only the priests were to handle only the priests were even to see these things uh, uh, much less to to touch them and to cover them. And over the golden altar, speaking of the altar of incense, uh, where the incense would be offered each day to the Lord and it represented prayer going up to the Lord. Over the golden altar, when it came time now to transport this particular furnishing of the tabernacle, they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of badger skins and they shall insert its poles and then they shall take all the utensils of service with which they minister in the sanctuary, 
put them in a blue cloth, cover them with a covering of badger skins, and put them on a carrying beam. And they shall take the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it, and they shall put on it all its implements with which they minister there, the fire pans, uh, the forks, the shovels, the basins, and all the utensils of the altar, and they shall spread on it a uh, covering of badger skins and insert its poles. So we're talking about, um, I'm sorry, the altar of uh, a burnt offering. And then the Aaron and his sons, and again it's to notice, uh, even though the, uh, that only they were to be touching these things. And then Aaron, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all its furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then, and only then, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them. They were the labor force. They would then come on the scene and carry, but they never saw these things with their own eyes. They simply transported them, but they shall not touch a holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. And so the responsibility of the sons of Kohath in their transportation of the Ark of the Covenant was to transport the furnishings which were a part of the Ark of, of the Covenant. And uh, that was uh, their responsibilities. Now, we're going to see later in Second Samuel when David becomes king over Israel and he is... Uh, king over the northern and southern kingdoms and it's, everything's united. He's so excited about you know, what God has called him to do, his single great desire, and I'm convinced it was the most important thing to him in his entire uh, reign as a king was to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, into Jerusalem. He wanted the presence of God, the things of God, to be at the center of their national life. So he calls on the priests now to transport the Ark of the Covenant, which wasn't in Jerusalem at that time, into Jerusalem. And some of you know what they did. They put it on the back of a cart, and they started to carry it in by a cart with some... Uh, oxen pulling it and then they hit the threshing floor and there was a little bit of a, a bump there and the, the ox cart kind of got upset a little bit and the Ark of the Covenant began to shake and Uzzah put out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord just killed him right on the spot. David stops the whole thing, the whole progression. He's really confused. In fact, he's pretty upset with God at that particular point. He's sanctified, upset with God. He doesn't understand. God, I'm trying... I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to do this thing. And then you, you kill a guy right here. We're doing a good thing, but they were doing a good thing the wrong way. And how God things get done are important to God. Not just to be the right thing, but done in the right way. And, uh, and then what David did is he sent the priests back. and said, we still want to get this into Jerusalem, but what went wrong here? He went back to the Bible. And the Bible declared that the Ark of the Covenant was always to be carried by men. It was never be carried on the back of a cart. And in fact, here as we've, we've got all of these things that are, are listed here, the table of, of showbread and uh, the Ark of the Covenant, it represents, Jesus, it represents the presence of God. The table of showbread, it represented fellowship uh, with God. You've got the golden lampstand or the menorah, and it represented, it, it provided light for the holy place. Uh, you've got the golden altar, and there it represents prayer being lifted up to God. All, those, all these instruments or all these furnishings would be carried by men. And it was all a picture of you and me here today and what Jesus would make possible in our lives. And that is, God knew there was going to be a time coming in history where He'd send a Savior into the world, Jesus Himself, who would take and make a way for our sins to be forgiven and for the Holy Spirit Himself to come inside of our lives. And so wherever we go in the world, we bring the presence of God with us. And God always intended that that would be carried into the world by man. When he talks about the, the uh, altar of incense, which represents prayer, we're the only ones who have access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that ability to access heaven in prayer, we take that with us around the world. If we don't take it, it doesn't go. Talk about the... Um, the uh, 
uh, menorah as it talks about the light and all. Jesus said, we are the light of the world. We carry that light of God all around the world wherever he takes us. And so these are things that God, a picture in the Old Testament of what he knew he was going to do in a better way in Christ. And that is, I want you men to carry these things, to carry the shadow of these things, because I know there's a day coming when my son is going to come into the world and make a way for not the shadow to be carried around the world by my people, but for it to be the substance of it to be carried. It's really amazing who we are in Christ and what it is that we carry individually, person by person, in, in, around this world. I'm glad for mass evangelism. I'm glad for Christian radio. I'm glad for Christian television. I'm glad for everything that gets the gospel out and the word of God out and points people to God and all of those things. But nothing can take the place of a, chi- a, a real live human being that's been born again and has all of these things from Christ. We are who we are in Christ. And that person, that changed life, comes into contact with another person and they see that's the reality of what Jesus does in a life. Nothing compares to that personal impact. And so these things were to be carried uh, by hand. And the appointed duty of, verse 16, of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the light, the sweet incense, the daily grain offering, the anointing oil, the oversight of all the tabernacle, of all that is in it with the sanctuary and its furnishings. And so one of Aaron's sons, Eliezer, he had responsibility of these. uh, These were his areas of oversight. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Do not cut off the tribe of the families of the Kohathites from among the Levites, but do this in regard to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint each of uh, of them to his service and task, but they, that is the Kohathites, shall not go in to watch, even watch, while the holy things are being covered by the priests, lest they die. And here you and I are, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They couldn't even watch the picture of the reality be handled. That's, what, that's the power of the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the greatness of His forgiveness, the position that how God sees us in light of our faith in Christ. That we, I mean, not only here we are in, but we don't die as a result of it. Wow, there's a lot of grace in that. And, uh, and, and so the privilege of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take also a census of the sons of Gershon. So a second family is introduced by their father's house, by their families, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, you shall number them all who enter to perform the service and to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. And this is the service of the families of the Gershonites in serving and caring. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the tabernacle of meeting with its coverings, the covering of badger skins that is on it, the screen for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the screen for the door of the gate of the court, the hangings of the court which are around the tabernacle and altar and their cords, all the furnishings for their service and all that is made uh, for these things so they shall serve. Now you might remember that the tabernacle, in terms of you had this great... wooden structure and much of it uh, covered by gold that was kind of the framing structure for it. But over the top, what covered, uh, constituted the covering of that tabernacle were four different layers of fabrics. And one of them was badger skin. And so we're talking about tremendous weight. And they were put together in sections and overlapped and clasped together. Also, around the tabernacle, there was the courtyard where sacrifices were made. And around that courtyard, there was a linen uh, kind of a fence, so to speak, that was all the way around 
uh, that for kind of privacy related to the sacrifices. And so those curtains they carried. This is what this particular family's responsibility was to carry these linens, to carry uh, these, these cloths. And uh, then we're told in verse 42, um, the, those of the families of the sons of Merari, so here's the third family, who were numbered by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for work in the tabernacle of meeting. Those who were numbered by their families were um, uh, 3,200. Wait a second. Wait a second. Hold on. Don't anybody tell me anything here. You know what I did. You knew before I did. Okay, give me a moment to get my bearings. This is so embarrassing. Not really. So let's see. We had, they did that. This, oh, okay. All right. Verse 27. How many of you are holding your finger right there? Okay, yeah. Listen, I never claim to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. So Aaron and his sons shall assign all the service of the sons of the Gershonites, all of their tasks and all their service, and you shall appoint to them all their tasks as their duty. And this is the service of the families of the son of Gershon in the tabernacle of meeting, and their duties shall be under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. And so this was Ithamar's area of oversight, this particular family. As for the sons of Merari, uh, now we get to this decently in an order from the beginning. You shall number them by their families and by their father's house. From 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, you shall number them. Everyone who enters the service to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And this is what they must carry as uh, all their service for the tabernacle of meeting. The boards of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, and the pillars around the court with their sockets, pegs and cords and all their furnishings and all their service and you shall assign to each man by name the items that he must carry and this is the service of the families of the sons of Merari is all their service for the tabernacle of meeting under the authority of Ithamar his oversight the son of Aaron the priest so their responsibility as a tribe was to carry the whole support structure for the tabernacle all of the boards so many of them covered with gold would have been very, very heavy. And God's going to give them a little bit of help, uh, as we'll see in a, in a couple of chapters. We won't see it tonight, but we will in the future. So these were their responsibilities spelled out. And God, I just, I like it. There's just, there's detail and there's a way to do things. He doesn't even want a socket lost. Ah, oh, socket, schmocket, you know, they're a dime a dozen, we can go get it. No, he says, I want the pegs, I want the sockets, I want all of them to be looked out after and to be transported right. Anything we do for the Lord should be done in a way that looks like him and brings glory uh, to, to him. Anything we say, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord, representing the Lord, it should be done well and, and with attention uh, to detail. And Moses and Aaron, Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of the congregation numbered the sons of the Kohathites by their families and by their father's house. From 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for work in the tabernacle of meeting. And so now they're going to be numbered, so we know how many are doing all of this work. And those who were numbered for the Kohath Heights by their families were 2,750. That's a pretty good workforce for, for doing things. And these are the ones who were numbered of the families of the Kohathites, all who might serve in the tabernacle of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandments of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Those who were numbered of the sons of Gershon by their families and by their father's house from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for work in the tabernacle of meeting, those who were numbered by their families by their father's house were 2,630 Gershonites. These are the ones who were numbered of the families of the sons of Gershon 
of all who might serve in the tabernacle of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord. And those are the families of the sons of Merai who were numbered by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for work in the tabernacle of meeting, those who were numbered by their families were 3,200. And so as the highest number of all, they did uh, all of the heavy lifting and so appropriate that that would be the case. And these are the ones who were numbered of the families of the sons of Merai, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the word of the Lord, by the hand of Moses. And all who were numbered of the Levites, whom Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel numbered by their families and by their fathers' houses from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who came to do the work of service and the work of bearing burdens in the tabernacle of meeting, those who were numbered, here's the grand total, were 8,000 580. So again, this is the workforce, the size of it, that was delivered to the priests to assist them in the spiritual uh, side of, of the nation. According to the commandment of the Lord, they were numbered by the hand of Moses, each according to his service and according to his task. Thus uh, they, were they numbered by him as the Lord commanded Moses. Now we get into chapter 5, and as we get into chapter 5, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, chapter. It seems a little disjointed when, when you uh, read it, but when we get into chapter 5, we run into the first series of commandments that the Lord gives in the book of um, uh, uh, Numbers, uh, of this kind of commandments in terms of toward the people as a whole. So far it's been numbers and structure and order and these things. Now all of a sudden he stops and, and, he, and he gives them uh, commandments, laws having to do with disease and death and sin and adultery and Nazarite vows and the priestly uh, blessings. And as we read through chapters 5 and 6, you'd think this is just a random collection of things that are on the mind of the Lord. But it isn't so. There is a, there is a theme all the way through everything that's covered in, in these two chapters. And the theme is holiness. It's the theme of separation. And he deals with the theme of separation from a lot of, of different angles. It's, it is no accident that chapter 6 ends with the priestly blessing that the priest, the high priest was to pronounce over the children of, of Israel on a daily basis. And the assumption was that the priest was then pronouncing that over a holy or a dedicated or an obedient people. And that's who that, that priestly blessing is is for. And so he, he, he turns now. You've got all of this structure in place. We've got the army in place. We've got everything in place for assisting the moving of the Ark of the Covenant. Structurally, everything is there. Oops, let's always remind my people God seems to be thinking of the importance of holiness. Because you can have all the structure you want in a church. You can have all of the army you want, all of the parking lot people and roamers and greeters and ushers and all of these different things. And if you don't have holiness, you don't have anything. And it's the same thing related to the nation of Israel. It's the same thing as I mentioned at the beginning. It's true of any nation. Nothing can take the place of personal holiness because God cannot overlook that and then say, yeah, but they got all of these structural things right. That doesn't, what, isn't what means the most to God. Our personal holiness and obedience to Him is, is what is important to Him, without which everything else is, is lost. And so we, we head into it <clears throat> and with that understanding. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, some kind of a flow of of body fluids out of their body and whoever uh, becomes defiled by a corpse they come into contact with a dead body you shall put out both male and female you shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps 
in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so, and they put them outside the camp. As the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. And so physical uncleanness or some kind of a, of a disease, um, or if you came into contact with a dead body, nobody knows what that body died of. Did that body die, that person die of a plague, or is there something that now you've taken on to yourself as a result of touching it. God says, I need that, want that group of people to be separated from the general population, the, those with these contagious diseases or potentially a contagious situation. So the plague isn't introduced in among uh, the people. And so just good common sense uh, precautions. So they're to be put out. Now, under the theme, uh, Pastor Pat taught on uh, uh, in the book of Hebrews last Sunday night and the great theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better he's better than angels he's better than Moses he's better than the law he's better than everything and uh, here is Jesus as he comes on the scene and in Jesus's kingdom when he comes into the world and he starts to interact with people he doesn't have to put anybody out <laughs> he cleansed the lepers he healed the woman with the issue of blood. He raised people from the dead. And so he is better. He is able to do what the law could never do in bringing us into intimacy with God's people, the rest of God's people, making us a healthy influence among the body of Christ, and then uh, uh, intimacy in our, our relationship with him. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any sin... Uh, that men commit an unfaithfulness against the Lord and that person is guilty. So here he's dealing with spiritual purity or a kind of uh, non-sin purity within, within the people. He's got a nation. He wants to keep them unified. It's important that they keep unified for his purposes as they're moving them to Canaan. It's not just about them getting to the promised land. It's about them getting there, having a place on the globe that is their land and for them to be established as a, a nation and a people in the world because God's going to bring the Messiah into the world through them. I mean, there's a lot at stake, us in this room. We tie all the way back to the, the book of Numbers. And so one of the, what's one of the most destructive things related to the unity of the body of Christ? When one person sins against another person and they won't admit it and they won't do what's right in it. You let that kind of stuff go on for any length of time, and it's going to create a division. It's going to splinter, and then that group of people, this nation, is going to start to infight. They'll destroy themselves. The devil won't even have to get up off of his hands to do it. And so he's telling them, now, this is how I want sin dealt with. When you sin against one another in my family or in, in this, this nation, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. So he's to confess that sin to the person that he sinned against. And, and obviously there's a, a, a desire for forgiveness there. There's humility that's required in that. But he doesn't just stop with confession. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full. So whatever he kind of ripped this person off for or whatever kind of the person got a loss for on, the person that had done the sin was to repay that in full plus 20% and it was to be given to the one who wronged. Crime was not to pay. Again, we've seen this in, in the Pentateuch here. Sin was not to pay. Now this thing of restitution is wonderful. We have, we have criminal law, don't we, and criminal courts, and then we have civil law and civil courts, and one of them deals with kind of the, the establishing of guilt, and then the other one deals with kind of the restitution element uh, of it. But in the body of Christ, there shouldn't be this, you know, uh, in fact, there's the forbidding of going to court against one another. I, one of the great things, and I, I like this whole idea and command of God related to restitution in the Old Testament, because when I sin against a person and, and it's cost them $500, and I come in and say, you know, I, I did wrong to you there, and I really, I'm really sorry about that, and I've confessed my sin to God and asked for His forgiveness, and I want to ask for your forgiveness also. Well, that's easy to do, because I've still got the $500 in my pocket somewhere, or it's a part of my net worth. 
It's another thing when the person says, I've really done wrong to you, and I want to return that $500 plus 20%. Now, that goes a long way toward bringing healing into the situation because the person has not only done what's right, but he's been forced to do even a little bit more. The Bible says that godly sorrow works repentance. When a person is really sorry with a godly sorrow for their sin, it'll, it will result in repentance. They will turn from that sin. And one of the great tests of repentance and whether I really am sorry about my sin and repentant related to my sin would be a willingness to make restitution. Where there's an unwillingness to make restitution, I think you have reason to doubt a person's sincerity related to to their repentance. And so this covered a lot of ground. Remember Jesus. I mean, here, children of Israel going into the promised land, fabulous, incredible, uh, incredibly spiritual things are at stake here related to uh, all of that. Very, very important. But the stakes are even higher related to the body of Christ. We're going to partake of communion here tonight. And Jesus spoke and he said, listen, if you guys come into any kind of service that's about me, and, uh, and you're worshiping me and all, and it comes into your mind of a wrong that you have done to somebody else, and that, that wrong, that, you, that sin that you've committed against somebody else, uh, you, the, it's festering in their life and it's ruining them and they're getting bitter and all of that kind of thing. He said, the best thing you can do for me is to put your gift down there at, at, at the place of worship and go and reconcile with your brother and then come back and worship me. That's the first step that I want. See, he's, he's working hard, Jesus is, in all of this to keep the body of Christ united. And the even greater thing that he's called us to, called the Great Commission. And you see churches splinter all of the time. I mean, it can, ha- it can happen in this place. There's kind of a, like a, a critical threshold that can kind of uh, hit on things where there's been so much wrong done and so much unforgiven this and so much bitterness in the room and so all this dynamic and everything and then pretty soon the thing just splinters off in 25 different directions. And now something really valuable for advancing the kingdom is lost because we haven't handled sin properly. So as we partake of communion tonight, it's a great time. The Christ that's been paid for our individual forgiveness, but also the forgiveness of, of others and all, is a time to stop and allow the Holy Spirit to search our own hearts and to say, if I sinned against somebody without confessing it to them and being willing to make the situation right, the Lord says, I want you to do that. And uh, uh, so the, the New Testament, um, again, this is a type of an even stronger thing that Jesus speaks about in, in the New Testament. And uh, so, let's see, where was I? Boy, I shouldn't leave a a passage. uh, um, The condition I'm in here tonight will be in chapter 8 as we start here. Okay, verse 8. But if the man has... Uh, Okay, if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. So let's say the person has done a wrong against somebody and then for some reason the person dies. Oh boy, I don't have to repay plus the 20% I'm out. No, God still, he doesn't want sin to pay. He doesn't want crime to pay. He said, in that case, you still aren't out from under the law of restitution. And what you do now is you give that money or you give that animal to the priest and it goes toward the things of the Lord. Now somebody looks and says, well, I don't know about restitution in, in the... You know, in terms of the new, tu- new Covenant and the New Testament. Remember Zacchaeus? We little man, a wee little man was he? Up in that sycamore tree and Jesus had lunch with him and everything and uh, invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was happy to do that and all. And as he's listening to Jesus teaching all, he speaks and he said that uh, makes the claim that he will re- repay fourfold all of the wrongdoing that he had done as a tax collector. And when Jesus heard a Jewish tax collector make that kind of a claim, he said, salvation has come to this house. I mean, that, that's a mark of repentance, a changed life. Those tax collectors were, were ruthless. And so here was that, that understanding of restitution, and Jesus commended it uh, in Zacchaeus. 
And so every offering of the holy things of the children of Israel, verse 9, which they bring to the priest shall be his, and every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest shall be his. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and, believe, and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, in other words, she commits adultery, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy, in other words, this guy has a, we would call it a sneaking suspicion, uh, comes upon him that his wife has been unfaithful, he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself. And so that's kind of the, the situation that we're looking at in this third area that the Lord deals with, having to do with sexual purity among uh, his people. So here is a situation where... Uh, a wife has perhaps been unfaithful to the husband. The husband suspects it, and, um, uh, but he has no proof for it, no physical evidence, no witnesses for it or anything like that. He just uh, suspects it. Now, if there were witnesses of the adultery, it, that was a capital crime. She would have been uh, killed uh, for that. But without any witnesses of it, uh, no judge could condemn this woman on, on the grounds of mere suspicion. And so... God establishes this way where these kind of suspicions could be brought to him in order that he who knows everything could be, bring out the truth about these things. Uh, widespread adultery, it was very, very common in all the nations surrounding uh, the children of Israel, very, very common in Egypt that they were coming out of, and God is wanting to make sure that sexual purity, sex being expressed within the confines of the commitment of marriage, that that was the standard for, uh, for his people, and he was uh, willing to uh, enforce them, uh, enforce that among the children of Israel. Otherwise, if there's just divorces all over and adultery all over, again, the nation would just corrupt and fall apart in the, the demise of, of the institution of marriage and the family unit, and uh, we'd never get a Messiah born into the world. And so he protects the institution of, of marriage uh, through this kind of ceremony. So he's got this, this suspicion, this jealousy. So this is what he was supposed to do with it. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. And uh, nobody can read this, by the way, uh, without, uh, I don't think any woman certainly can, without uh, writing, no single woman, without writing uh, somewhere in the bulletin or something, remind me not to marry a jealous man. Because <laughs> mm, this is fairly embarrassing for her. But uh, as we're going to see also, and all of this is kind of as hard as it, uh, it, it looks to be on the woman, and, and actually it's very, very hard on the man too because if for, for every case where he is wrong and it's just jealousy and she is innocent, uh, there's the other case where the husband is tormented by the fact that adultery has occurred within his marriage. And so this isn't really fun for anyone, but God sets up a way now where he can look at the situation and bring the truth out. Uh, about it, since he's the only one that knows the truth. So the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and he shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal, and he shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it. And so you, a lot of times these offerings were brought to the Lord and they would have oil put on them, frankincense put on them. These were symbols of joy, uh, blessings, speaking of the Holy Spirit, speaking of prayer and, and blessings and all. These were not to be added to this offering. And again, it communicates that what's happening here right now is no fun for anyone. Is miserable for the wife, is miserable for the husband. And it's miserable for God because you either have adultery in the marriage that he's going to have to expose 
or you have a husband who's given over to a spirit of jealousy and he's humiliating his wife under the power of it. And so God says, don't add anything to the offering. Just bring me a plain offering because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. Then this was what the priest was to do in the light of this. And the priest shall bring her near and set her, and this is key, before the Lord. This is all about the Lord. He's the only one that knows the truth. And so this was a way for God to declare someone innocent or declare them guilty. You can't put a situation in better hands than the hands of the Lord. And so that's what they wanted uh, to do here. And the priest then shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and so it would be holy by virtue of of its location under the tabernacle and put it into water so you got holy water and holy dust and there's going to be holy word added to this she's going to drink this uh, um, uh, combination of things and holiness is going to come into her life with the idea that that holiness would expose any unholiness in her and then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover her head, put the offering for remembering in her hands, which the, is the grain offering of jealousy, and the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. In essence, in essence, and he's speaking, he's declaring openly, there is every good chance that this woman is completely innocent in this. And, and he is declaring that if she is innocent, then may this have no ill effect uh, on her. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, while married, and you have defiled yourself, and some other man than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall bring the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. Now, he's not declaring here uh, that he, this isn't describing some kind of a uh, terminal or deadly disease that he's pronouncing upon her. He is basically pronouncing, and what he's speaking about is the area of her reproductive organs. And he's saying, now, may if you are guilty and you have been and this and you've caused this thing to escalate all the way to this place, then may this ceremony render you sterile, unable to have children. In other words, if you are not going to use the, um, uh, the sexual relationship for its uh, proper purposes in its proper setting in marriage for the purpose of bearing uh, children, then may you lose that higher uh, purpose of the sexual relationship. And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. And then the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Now sometimes if you're new to the Bible, you can, you're very familiar with the word Amen. Uh, people say Amen in, in things and, and we're used to it. Sometimes we don't know what it means. The word Amen means just what she would say here, Amen, so be it. That's what Amen means. So be it. That's the truth. It also means that's the truth. So when somebody prays a prayer and we agree with it, we say, Amen, that's the truth. So be it. That's my prayer too, Lord, in this situation. And so she, when she says, Amen to this, she's in agreement with this. Yes, may that be my portion, what has just been described here. And then the priest shall write these curses in a book and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water and so that gets added to the dust and added uh, to the uh, the holy water and they would so that he would write these things down this thing this vow that she's agreeing to uh, the ink would dry and it would be uh, scraped off and put in into the uh, concoction 
there. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. And then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy uh, from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse shall enter her and become bitter, and her belly shall swell, and her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse. Um, uh, a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her, then the man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her guilt. And so uh, this uh, very interesting way that God used to reveal the truth about a situation. God is trying to protect something. He is trying to protect, the in, again, the institution of marriage among his people but at the same time, as we read this, we can look at it and say, boy, the woman sure is on a, on a bad uh, side of, of, of this whole thing, and, and, uh, and, and it seems a, a little hard what, what she gets uh, put through here. But in, in light of the, the, the way things were in the ancient world, this is actually very gracious on God's part. Because what he does in that kind of a situation where if you have a jealous husband and uh, who just thinks, always thinks this and is thinking things that don't have a basis in reality and all. The Lord is protecting that woman from being unnecessarily divorced by the husband to be put out and from him just acting under his own emotions and his own, actually his own sin and, and, and all. So he was... He was protecting the institution of marriage, but protecting the woman. He said, no, you bring that to me. I'll reveal the truth about the situation. But you don't just get to go around divorcing your wife just because you have a suspicion that isn't based in reality. And, and so this is what's going on uh, here. And I am uh, very much in the camp that believes that this was as, as, uh, an act of grace uh, toward the woman and all all of this. Now, I, um, I, I think that the, it's very important to recognize uh, in this situation the, uh, with, with a husband, because I think, that, again, as I said, somewhat in, in jest, but not really in jest, where a woman would look at this and say, wow, under the old covenant, it'd be best to steer clear of, of uh, a man that doesn't have better control of his jealousy. If he's wrong over and over and again in a situation like this, then to marry him. And I would contend that that's, that's something to really think about even today. Do you realize, and I, and I, speak, I speak to women first of all, um, that's not a bad thing to allow a man to work through between him and the Lord before you marry him. Otherwise, you can, you can put, I'm not telling you what to do, but you can really get pulled into something that can really, really be a nightmare. It starts to isolate you and this, and it's always suspicions, and you know better, and, and all of that. As I speak related to the men, jealousy in Galatians chapter 5, that is a work of the flesh. That is sin. And if you had a guy like this that is a person where he, he really didn't have legitimate reason to, uh, to suspect, but he just suspects no matter what, he's got this whole kind of imaginary world that goes on in, inside of, of him, that's sin. And that, that's a, uh, that does tremendous damage in the body of Christ, tremendous damage in personal relationships. And that's something that needs to be addressed. 
And, and I think it's a good thing to, if that's something that's driving you, even in an existing marriage uh, tonight, that's something that drives you and dominates you in that relationship. That's a good thing to come and uh, talk with one of the men maybe after the, for the service for prayer. Go to the men's fellowship or come in and meet with one of the pastors during the week and talk about what the Bible has to say about that sin before there's the destruction of these relationships. And in our life and sometimes a person will drive away very very valuable people in their lives because they're not dealing with it on, in a proper uh, proper way and dealing with it is sin is well that's that's just the way that I am it's very destructive and it, and it needs to be dealt with well we'll stop there tonight and was hoping to get into chapter 6 and uh, you know thinking that we might get that far and uh, and I sure wouldn't have minded getting into chapter 6 tonight since I was going to use it to introduce the bread <laughs> for the Lord's Supper tonight. So let me just <clears throat> share with you what's in chapter 6 as if I had the time. Um, so when we get into chapter 6, I do have to carve a little bit off of it because I do want it to be a part of our meditation tonight for communion. In chapter 6, he... he addresses what's known as the Nazarite vow. And it is where a man or a woman could make a commitment to God that was even beyond the commitment of kind of the rank-and-file Christian. Everyone was called to obey God's word under the Old Testament. So it wasn't a thing of, okay, I'm going to obey God more than the disobedient part of the body of Christ. He wasn't talking about that. He was talking about the kind of person who would look and say, I want to devote and dedicate my life to God in an even greater measure than the completely obedient child of God that's kind of walking with them through this, this pilgrimage. And that would be the commitment that, that would be uh, made to them. They wanted something extraordinary in their relationship with God and in their intimacy with, with God. And so they would make that commitment to the Lord. And we'll talk uh, uh, more about it um, next week. But I think always about the bread, as I do think about the bread that represents Jesus' body and all of this. I, always my heart, you already know it because I introduced the bread probably four times out of five this way. But it's where Jesus takes, and on the night before the cross, he said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And, and it is his dedication to the Father that, you know, lands him on the cross. It wasn't what Pilate did or the religious leaders did or anything like that, but his love for, for the Father. And, and so it always speaks to me of that commitment to the Lord and a commitment that looks like Christ. Whatever it costs me, I want to walk with you. I want to obey you, Father, in, in this life. And that's an extraordinary commitment. We're, we're getting dumbed down today in the body of Christ. And I don't talk about it on Sunday mornings or Sunday nights, and I don't you know, beat up professing Christianity or the body of Christ, but there's a very strong move away from the Word of God. We talk about the dumbing down in, in schools and these different kinds of things. It, to me, it is nothing like the dumbing down that's happening in the body of Christ. People even knowing the Word of God, let alone being committed to obeying it. How can you obey what you don't know? and instead being given a song and a dance until we end up in a place where we look and say, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good compared to all the other Christians I know, but that's not the standard. That's not the standard. God's called you to do and be what you are to uniquely be and do in this world, and you will answer for that specific what he calls this person over here or this group of five people to do, that may be something entirely different where they will give an account for their faithfulness. We'll give an account for our faithfulness to what God is calling us to do and in the, in the intimacy of our relationship with the Lord. When I was a new Christian, I read just about every book I could find on revival. We will get to the Lord's Supper in just a moment. But I read uh, so many books on revival... And I enjoyed them. I'm certainly not putting them down. But I remember reading one, and it was entitled Why Revival Tarries by uh, Ravenhill. 
And there was one line in it. It's the only thing I can read it, remember about it. If I were to pick it off the shelf and look through it, I'd, I'd find huge sections of it underlined and all. I really enjoyed it. But he, he issued a challenge in that book, and the challenge was this. Where is the prophet who will move the prophets? Where is the prophet who will move the prophets? Where is the prophet who will move even the most godly and challenge them with his life and with his message? I think that's the standard for us. The Bible teaches that you and I have the intimacy of relationship with God tonight that we want. The relationship that you have with God tonight, you have the relationship that you want in terms of intimacy. James said, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. The intimacy of relationship with God, the devotion of that relationship is determined by us. And so maybe some of us sit here tonight and we look and say, I like my relationship with God. I like the dedication, the devotion that is there. It's very sweet and it's very intimate and I'm very satisfied with, with my dedication to him. I think that's great. Then we'll just celebrate that you know, with you as we partake of the symbol of his body in a moment. But some of us may sit here tonight as we take that symbol of, of his body and say, you know, I don't like the relationship I have with him tonight. It's not as close as it's been, or it's not, uh, it's not what I want it to be. I'm not drawing nigh to him in the way that I want to. And the Lord's Supper is a time, not to condemn, but it's a time to just stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's look at this. Let's think about this. This is real. This is true. This is what Jesus has done for us. Heaven is real. It's in our future. All of these, these things. Wait a second. Let's stop. Take stock of where we are. And if we look and we say, no, I don't like it. I don't like where I am in it. And to just stop and look and say, but Lord, you told me I can draw nigh to you as nigh as I want. And you'll draw nigh to me and meet me there. And so tonight, I want to draw nigh to you, go deeper in you, and to make that commitment and draw nigh to him tonight. So let's consider these things as the men come forward now in the worship team and as we pass out the cracker which represents Jesus' body. And as it's passed out, take one of, a piece of the cracker, hold on to it, and then we'll pray together and we'll partake together as one body, one portion of the body of Christ. So come forward and uh, we'll, we'll get started on that.